on to the, uh, the main uh, item of the, uh, the afternoon, which is our Thomas Willis uh, lecture. So it's a great pleasure to introduce Professor uh, Macon Nedegaard, who is this year's Thomas Willis uh, lecturer. Professor Nedegaard has had a very distinguished uh, career in neuroscience. She received her MD and PhD in the University of Copenhagen and then moved to the USA working at Cornell University Medical College before joining the faculty of New York Medical College as Professor of Cell Biology in 1994. She then moved to the University of Rochester where she held the Frank P. Smith Professorship in the Department of Neurosurgery, as is so often the case in North America and many other departments as well, um, and was the co-director of the Center for Translational Neuromedicine. Uh, in 2014, she moved back to Copenhagen as the professor of glial cell biology and the co-director of their new center for basic and translational neuroscience. The objective of Makin's research is to understand the biological functions of astrocytes, their ability to interact with other cell types, and to use their no this knowledge to develop novel therapeutic strategies to treat, hopefully cure, a variety of, neuro of neurological disorders. As many of you know, glial cells are the most numerous cells in the CNS, yet most research on the brain has focused on neurons. And as a consequence, glial have been given a minor role, relative minor role, in brain function. But Professor Nedegaard has challenged this view by showing that astrocytes and other glial cells do indeed have a role in higher cognitive functions. The main premise of her work is that understanding the basic cellular functions of glial cells will offer extraordinary opportunities for combating disease. And in her studies, she's been able to identify a previously unknown brain system, the glymphatic system, a brain equivalent to the lymphatic system, within which CSF diffuses rapidly and mixes with interstitial fluids, thereby filtering metabolic byproducts that accumulate, accumulate due to axonal activity. This brain-wide pathway is strongly suppressed during wakefulness, which is very interesting, and she's pr proposed that it is involved in clearing the brain of metabolic waste products which accumulate during wakefulness. And in a recent paper in Science, she intriguingly, intriguingly suggested that sleep may rid the brain of some of the proteins connected with dementia. So as you can see, Professor Nedegaard's research proves one of the role of the co this complex but very under-researched area of neuroscience, and it's with great pleasure that I invite her to give the fourth Thomas Willis Lecture on the glymphatic system. and it's very British, which is very, very charming. <laughs> so, so anyway, I was going to talk uh, about the lymphatic system and first try to put it into connection of what we really are exposed to in modern day neuroscience. So this is one of the typical uh, pictures uh, we see that basically arises from the Brain Initiative, both in the US by Obama and here in Europe. And it really shows a connection brain, the exquisite detail of neural connection. And it basically inspired the field of neural computation to think, yes, the brain is all about neural computation, and if we really can record from all the millions of neurons, we might understand psychiatric diseases, we might understand why we sleep and so on. But in reality, this is really not what the brain is. Of course, the brain is cells and tissue that forms an organ. And similar to all other organs, the kidney, the heart, the brain has to consider how do they maintain maximum function and also health during the lifespan of a human being. Uh, the brain has a particular problem, and that is, as you all know, is that it has one of the highest energy consumptions of the body. And any biological activity is directly related to metabolic waste product. So basically I will discuss how the brain gets rid of that and how it tries to maintain its own health. So if you just look at the brain, how do you maintain good brain health? It's very basic and you actually stumble a little. You know for the cardiovascular system, it's great for your heart if you do exercise. You know for kidney, 
it's very good to drink a lot of water if you have a tendency to kidney stone, and similar, it's good to eat fibers for the intestine. We probably all know, although we have to think a bit about it, that sleep is absolutely critical for brain health. And the days we wake up too early or we went too late to bed, the brain doesn't seem to function well. And if you extend that for a little bit more, like one or two days of sleep deprivation, patients that have a tendency to seizure would also often get spontaneous seizure and they can go into delirium. So being a MD from Copenhagen in the mid-80s, I was like thinking, so what, what is the purpose of sleep? Because we had actually, in medical school at that time, we did not have a single lecture on sleep. So I'm totally uneducated. I came from the sideline and said, okay, what are the purposes of that? And when you look into it, you see that, sure, there's been many very, very good studies suggesting that sleep play an important role in development. It basically formed this, uh, the... Uh, the, it forms circuitry uh, during that, and it's key for that. It's clearly also key that we have uh, sleep for memory consolidation, and many very beautiful studies weekly suggest that, including Tononi and Cervelli's hypothesis that you basically have scaling up of synaptic connection or synaptic strength during wakefulness, and only the connection that are implicated in what you're learning remain after a night of sleep. So that seems very good uh, uh, data. And you also have some data suggesting that uh, you fight infection better during sleep, but it's clear that we don't sleep to preserve energy because the energy expenditures is almost the same in sleep and wakefulness. So in none of these four things that are listed here that really are the main point in sleep research really, should, really explain why do all species that have been studied to now, and that include, include humans and flies, why do they die if we deprive them of sleep? This suggests that sleep will subserve a really basic fundamental uh, process. Uh, here is a study that's a little bit less severe. This is from Penn Sleep Clinic by Sigrid uh, Visay. And she basically did a very mild sleep deprivation. What she did was that she um, sleep deprived mice for three hours every morning for just three hours. So basically she had an undergraduate showing up at six in the morning when the mice want to go to sleep when the light is turned on. And she, the, she had the undergraduate handling them and left them back in the cage. So they could recover their sleep deficit if they, if they could sleep. But what she found was that you actually have a loss of the dendritic complexity in Lucas Aurelius, as you see here. You have, and when she quantified it, just after three days of three hours daily sleep deprivation, you had a highly significant loss in the complexity of dendrite in Lucas Aurelius, which is known to be very sensitive to sleep deprivation. So seeing something like that, you then start to think, okay, if you don't have a really good reason for knowing why all species die if you sleep deprive them, maybe you can go into what regulates sleep. What do we know about that? And as uh, uh, very, very good groups here have shown and are working at, you have, of course, clock genes that basically put us in phase with day-night time. And that would basically come on and off, and that would regulate our sleep. In addition, you have the need to sleep, the sleep pressure. That every, every time you reach a certain time of night, some, some at night, some after midnight, you would have the feel, need to sleep and you would basically recover and that can be quantified during your sleep by the power of the slow delta wave. You need to sleep how it recovers. If you uh, stays up, you might not work, you might be do other things, but you build up basically the additional sleep pressure. And one thing that's come out of these studies, when you're looking at different organs, and again, this is very, very basic, that the need to sleep pressure that we experience if we're not sleeping is clearly a function that's restricted to the brain. We, don't, don't, we do not know of any particular function of the kidney or the liver or other organ that really fails with just one night of sleep deprivation. So clearly, the brain has a need to sleep and recover. And understanding why the sleep pressure really is a brain-specific thing, you can start to ask, so what do the brain 
miss, one could explain this really fundamental need to sleep. And one thing we also learn, and this is actually something we learned in the medical school, is that yes, CNS does not have a lymphatic system. So this includes both the brain and the spinal cord. Uh, so anyone who is in neuroscience and think about uh, the lymphatic system, think immediately on immune function, because that's one of the first things you learn. But the lymph capillaries, which are blind capillaries, and they're very leaky, they basically pick up any proteins from the interstitial space that is uh, released by both cells and that enter by the bloodstream. And those proteins, they are transported by the uh, lymph capillary back where they emptied out at the level of the subclavian vein back into the general circulation. What happened to the protein? The protein is simply by the general circulation transported to the liver, which you can regard as a basic, basic recycling plane. The liver is specializing in recycling and metabolic supply to the rest of the body. So this is important. Probably because the lymph that is returned to the general circulation on a daily basis is actually delivering more, pro more protein back than we, most of us eat every day. So this is a substantial amount. So anyone who doubts that can just look at any kind of uh, lymphatic diseases, like for example after uh, removal of lymph vessels uh, for women that have breast cancer, and you can see swelling if you if you have destroyed the lymphatic vessel, and that is simply because you have accumulation of protein in that area that's not supplied by lymph vessel. So the return of protein by the lymphatic system is really a key function of the lymphatic vessel. So how can the brain that have a tremendous metabolic turnover and also on hourly basis are renewing membrane proteins such as receptor that get inactivated and if you calculate very simply you actually have seven grams of protein production every day that also have to be removed. How can the brain that are so specialized in function and need to be working perfectly when we are awake, how can you really think that the brain should recycle all its own protein. Because that's a current concept in the field is, yes, the brain is degrading its own protein by proteases, by ubiquitin, and so on, and basically reusing the amino acid or exporting the amino acid. The reason for this concept is that the blood-brain barrier have almost no transport mechanism for, for protein. It's all amino acid, very small peptide, and most of those are facilitating influx rather than efflux. So the brain would import what is really needed to build protein, but it would not export a whole lot. So they really came, so then the question is, do the brain really recycle all its own protein? And this is a, a very important question because all the, the, the diseases of aging that involve neurodegeneration accumulate proteins. So the brain seems to, at least when it ages, to have a hard time getting rid of these proteins that all basically are proteins that are important in brain function, but what happens in aging is that they start to accumulate and the brain seems to have a very, very hard time getting rid of accumulated protein, oligomeres and later amyloid plaques and so on, they accumulate, they initiate a low-grade no inflammation and the inflammatory environment in all of these diseases have been shown to be involved in neurodegeneration. <coughs> so, uh, coming from that, you can ask, so what have people thought about it and export protein? And there has been very good groups, especially Helen Scher's group at Brown University, had suggested, yes, CSF, that of course is made in the ventricle by the poor plexus, and leave the ventricle by providing medendrum and then circulate around the brain and then is exported by the arachnoid villi or by spinal nerve or cranial nerve. It has been proposed that that volume of fluid that surrounds the brain could be kind of a sink for waste, like a sort of lymphatic system. But then people that are very smart and can really look at diffusion of molecules in the very complex extracellular space of the brain. You have a very high tortuosity because basically brain is a whole bunch of fibers interconnected. So if you try to diffuse if you're protein in that space and try to reach the cerebrospinal fluid, 
you actually have a very hard time because proteins are normally pretty big, they're 40 to 60 kilodalton, and sizes would really restrict your diffusion. Smaller molecules can diffuse, but even for a small uh, waste product, a speed amyloid, that's only 4 kilodalton, it's actually been calculated, it would only diffuse by 1 centimeter over 100 hours. And if you consider the tremendous production of beta amyloid and how little you actually find in cerebrospinal fluid, you are actually wondering, is this an efficient way of exporting your waste? So basically people who did this uh, calculation said, no, they can't be. This is not efficient. So export of your waste product by cerebrospinal fluid, by diffusion, is not going to work. It can't be effective. The brain has to recycle its own proteins. But then we have another process, and that is simply that of convection. So convection is basically a pressure-driven system, so it's like a river. And if you throw something in the river, that being a small brains or a large brains with different molecular sizes, it would actually diffuse with exactly the same velocity because it's a fluid flow that transports it. It's not diffusion. So this would be a much more efficient way if the brain had some kind of connective flow or cerebrospinal fluid to transport protein outside the cells away. And does the brain have that? Yes, we all know it actually has it because the brain gets a tremendous supply of arteries that all lay on the base of the brain in the surface of villas. And those brain positivity always basically have cerebrospinal fluid pulsing. Basically, the elasticity of the arterial wall have it pulsing. So, can that CSF can it get into brain? Yes, if you look at the brain, there's actually something the brain is very unique in, and that is that the brain has a highly defined perivascular space. In all other organs in the brain and the spinal cord, blood vessels are just immersed in a little bit of connective tissue within the within the organ. In brain, you have the entire vasculature, so this is arteries, capillaries and veins surrounded by a vascular infeed of green. Those vascular infeed of they cover 99.4% of the entire vasculature. Uh, <clears throat> why is that special? That's special because you actually create a very special space here inside, so the perivascular space where you basically have the vessel wall, either smooth muscle cells or endothelial cells who forms the inner wall, and you have an outer wall or vascular infeed or vasculocyte. You actually have a space where tortuosity is much lower because you don't have many cell processes. You have a little bit of uh, connective tissue laying in here that really don't provide resistance towards movement of fluid. So you can look at it as a highway for fast fluid transport. So what would drive it? Very conveniently, you actually have that these perivascular spaces at the outside of the brains connect as a working bobbin space directly to the subarachnoid space where you have uh, the cerebrospinal fluid. So you have direct contact between those two compartments. In addition, how what is pulsing? That's of course the arteries. And those pulsations are not standing still in space. Those pulsations are generated by the heart, which means they would from the uh, PL artery basically dive down. And if they could drive fluid along the wall, the public could drives it, drive it in, just, just because they're moving downward into the brain, or from the base of the uh, brain, they're driving up these penetrating arteries. Uh, so our question was, well, could this uh, arterial positivity, could that drive literally cerebrospinal fluid into the brain? And this is, I'll just turn this a little bit down so you can see it. So you can actually prove that by simply taking a mouse, making a cranial window, and then you can just put a little bit of fluorescence dye into cerebrospinal fluid and see what happens. And when you do that, in this case here, we have filled the vasculature. So this is a plasma labeling. It's just a red dextrin, so we can see the vasculature. And here um, I have put arrows on the penetrating artery that basically dive perpendicular to the cortical surface right down into, into the cortex. So now I inject a fluorescent screen dye to get some contrast, and this movie is only 15 minutes long. And I hope you agree that it's actually very dramatic what you see. You see the PLR to first 
we see the sky ejected to stellar magna. But very soon after that, you see the periarterial spaces lightening up more than rest of the brain. And eventually, after 15 minutes, the dye has basically spread out, and you see it fairly evenly across the whole brain virgulment when you look 180 micrometer down. But it's clear that the arterial space is really the place for the first of the actions. Uh, you can repeat doing this kind of experiment, but you can also, at the same time, inject a small dye and a large dye. So just, again, labels. So this is co-injection, and then, Instead of looking at it in vivo using two photon imaging, you can perfusion fix the brain and look at how did the dye distribute. And it's clear when you do that that there is really an effect of size in how it enters the brain. So some kind of filter function that slows the bigger dyes down, that's green dye, which you see strictly perivascular. It's not entered the brain tissue at this point, whereas the red dye that's much smaller, it's tenfold smaller, it's the size of a beta amyloid by 3 to 5 kilodalton has actually entered the brain parenchyma around the lentoposteriac brains of the middle cerebral artery, but also in pocket under PA. And if you actually look very carefully at this pocket you see, you actually find that you have, uh, have uh, PL arteries laying on top of those, and that pulsation probably drives the PL influx. So it's not random that you see these uh, fluxes. If you do EM just five minutes after you inject the dye, you see it's strictly localized in the perivascular space, in between the astrocyte infield and the vascular wall. So as a clear biologist, this was really interesting because a big mystery in the astrocyte field was the perivascular process of astrocyte. And what was the mystery? The mystery was, so this is a capillary here, this is Ole Peter Ottersen that basically described all of uh, the water channels in brain. He basically described that almost all of the water channels in brain, and this is like point four, they are all localized in a highly polarized fashion in the vascular infeed or vascular site, but only at the site of the vascular infeed, the plaster around the vessel, so the inner side of the perivascular space as here. You have a little bit of active point outside, but if you stay with two astrocyte-specific markers, here GFAP, as we all know, and here echo point four, you think they belong to different cells, but it's the same cell type, it's the same cell, it's labeling, it's labeling astrocyte, but most of the echo point are localized around the vessel, and therefore it looks like a vessel staining, but it's not, it's a vascular infeed. So the mystery in the field was really why do astrocytes express so enormous amount of water channel in these perivascular processes? And the mystery was because endothelial cells express absolutely no water channel in brain. They're absolutely close for water fluxes. So the mystery was why do you have an open faucet facing a closed faucet? And actually the echo point four expression is so impressive that they were discovered already in the 50s by Fritz Fracture, where you saw that the plasma membrane, almost 50% of the plasma membrane of astrocyte, were water channel. They didn't know at that point it was water channel, but they could see that there were some square arrays, and they was actually thinking these were potassium channels. That was later disproven, and Peter Ackler basically got the Nobel Prize in, I think, 2003, by showing the function of these water channels is just to conduct water, no, no ions, at least for point four. So we saw maybe this makes all the sense in the world because maybe you position water channels that basically reduce the resistance towards moving a fluid right here, highly polarized, to reduce the resistance for moving perivascular CSF that moving down along the vessel. So it basically are facilitated to flow into the very complex environment of the brain parenchyma. So maybe you position it there to basically facilitate it. So in order to test that, we um, collaborated with uh, Ole Peter Ottersen and we got uh, a point for knockout mice. There's no pharmacological means by which you can manipulate equipoints at least not point four. And what we found was that in mice, uh, these are little mates and they're young mice, that you, uh, if you delete point four, you have a much reduced influx, suggesting that cerebrospinal fluid fluxes will depend on water channels in glial cells. 
So based on a lot of different uh, reporter miles where we could basically distinguish arteries from veins in vivo and really visualize the movement of CSF traces, we made this model of the lymphatic system as we called it. And we called it the lymphatic because it's a lymphatic system in essence. It's just like it's built differently. And it's driven by glial cells, uh, the point four. So basically, again, you have cerebrospinal fluid getting pumped in along the periarterial space here and facilitated by water channel just on the astrocyte end feed. You set up a convective flow like a river that would basically drag anything outside cells along with it and it would collect around the deep medial veins. I'm not showing the evidence for that, but we have proven that by a couple of different ways. And in essence, you would just drag any, any compound, so this could be iron, it could be lactate, it could be glucose, or it could be small peptide or protein, it would be dragged along and basically accumulated. So this is really important. You would expect that uh, if these convective fluxes are important, you would expect that you could take an endogenous protein that's been implicated in endogenous innovation and test is it really transported by the system. And again, we use point 4 knockout mice, and we basically just tested does point 4 play a role in amyloid clearance. So again, beta amyloid is primarily made during synaptic activity. It's most often a slow-vulnerable device, so there's no reason to believe it's different in point 4 knockout mice. And what we found was that about 60% of beta amyloid is removed in a, in a it slowed clearance of beta amyloid in point 4 knockout mice. Uh, so that was it. So looking again at neurodegenerative diseases, you start to ask, okay, if we are accumulating proteins uh, as we age, maybe glymphatic activity goes down. And very sadly, it really goes down. So here we have compared uh, influx of cerebrospinal fluid tracers that are all injected here in cisterna magna. It's just a nice big space where we can inject them without causing bleedings. And if you look at um, tracer influx after half an hour in young mice, it's very much uh, more substantial than if you look in old mice that's about 18 months old. So those who quantify that, there's a very significant reduction in lymphatic fluxes that here, especially for the uh, Smaller compound actually reaches, you only get about 15% in compared to the younger mice. So very substantial reduction in aging. You can also, since we are interested in uh, uh, age-related diseases, you can also ask how does small vessel disease or multilacunar stroke, how would that affect it? Because again, this is basically a plumbing system. So any uh, uh, tissue lesion, you expect to increase the system and thereby reduce lymphatic influx. And for that purpose, we used a model developed by Mike Moskowitz, where you basically inject cholesterol crystal um, and you temporize just a few minutes, occlude the common artery, and then you release it, and you only get these incomplete infarcts in the same site as you injected, most of them in the same site. And they're actually so incomplete that you can't really use general basic histology to identify them because you have about 50% neuronal uh, survival within the lesion in most of them. So the best way we found to, to, to identify this uh, micro-lesion is to stain from microglia one, one week after we induced the stroke. And you see that you can get these uh, small lesions here. That uh, if you look at it, you have about 50% neuronal loss. But more impressively, if you stain for GFAP in blue, you see that you have a really increase in reactive diosis, not only very close to the lesion and within the lesion, but in large area of the same hemisphere. So our question was, would this reactive diosis, would that affect the influx of cerebrospinal fluid tracers? Or would it only be in the lesion you had reduced influx? So basically that was the question. And if you combine uh, the section here with influx of lymphatic tracers, here green tracer, you see you have beautiful influx pervascular of the green dextrin tracer. I think it's about uh, 
40 kilodalton, but in most of the same hemisphere as you have these microlesion, you actually have a very significant drop in influx. If you compare the uh, contralateral hemisphere to wild-type mice without lesion, you find it's actually also reduced in this side. So it's a global effect, again emphasizing that these cerebrospinal fluid fluxes are macroscopic fluxes and small lesion can affect the whole system. So looking at that, you also start to ask, uh, especially in uh, Alzheimer's disease, where you have amyloid plaque formation, and many of them around the arteries as vascular amyloidosis, you start to ask, do you also have even further reduced lymphatic fluxes as a function of aging in mice that are mice model of Alzheimer compared to the little maid? So mice that have lesion. And if you look at old um, APP PS1 mice that have developed amyloid plaque, you see yes, they have a reduced uh, here, in this case here, we're looking at clearance of beta amyloid, and also for inulin, suggesting there's convective fluxes is reduced. But probably more surprising, you actually have reduced fluxes even prior to the develop the amyloid plaque. And it's significant in your mice here, that are pretty young. This is before plaque formation. So you can say that in the case of, of, of uh, basically a beta overproduction, you already have some effect, which I don't know. I don't know how it's caused, but I know that if we look at lymphatic fluxes in wild-type mice, and we inject beta amyloid an hour before we do the analysis, we have a very significant decrease. So that is basically supporting the concept that beta, beta amyloid in itself has some no toxic or clear toxic effect, and it can reduce not only blood flow but probably also cerebrospinal fluid fluxes. So looking at that, we start to wonder, maybe we really need to develop a diagnostic platform so we can study lymphatic fluxes before you have protein accumulation. And clearly our way of looking at it using uh, uh, basically uh, optical method and fluorescent tracer are not clinically applicable. So I have worked with Helena Benveniste that's running the uh, uh, MRR core at Stony Brook University. And she did a couple of changes to what we have done. So she used MRI and she injected contrast agent. But she injected it uh, similar to us in Systerna Magna, but she looked at rat brain. Because rat brain is, uh, she really likes the bigger brain for her imaging study. And this movie here she uh, created just by injecting gadolinium is two hours long. But I hope you agree that influx phase is actually over after just 30 minutes, even in a bigger brain, as I read. So you can see here, if I play it. You can see, you see the vascular influx very clearly, and then you see in most, in at least the last hour, you basically see a reduction in contrast agent, indicating you're in the clearance phase already. So looking at that and looking at this tremendous amount of fluid being uh, pumped around in the brain, you start to wonder, how can the brain be awake, interacting with surrounding, making decisions and uh, processing sensory input, and at the same time, basically work as a kidney. The kidney has actually a higher metabolic demand in the brain because pumping of fluid is not the water, it's a transport across the plasma membranes of the iron that is really energy demanding. And you start to wonder, how can the brain do all that and still maintain a lower uh, metabolic demand than the kidney. And at that point we realized that all our studies had been done in a nest-sized mice or rat. So we had at the same time, because we are interested in astrocyte uh, function during uh, sensory information, for example, we had developed a technique where we could image uh, awake mice. So it's very simple. You basically, and this is work done by Lulu Xi and Hong Ni Kang, it's very simple. You basically um, train the mice. You make a cranial window. You put a cover slip on to keep keep a close cavity, and then you would mount your mice with a little head plate. The first day, five minutes at the microscope state. You give it a little sugar water, and you don't hurt it. You talk nice to it, and the next day you do it for ten minutes, and you expand for a couple of days. The mice feel very comfortable. Actually, so comfortable that. The problem is to fall asleep because the experiments are done during daytime. 
where mice sleep. So you actually have to keep waking them up if the mice are well trained. And one thing we did was that we didn't trust that we could actually look at the mice and tell whether they're awake or asleep. Of course, we have to measure EEG, so we did that in the opposite hemisphere of emitting. And then we, inject, we injected two dyes again. The difference from before was it was injected at a different time point, because the key for us was to use the same mice, the same field of view, but in two different states of brain activity to really validate, is there a difference in different state of arousal in inflow of cerebrospinal fluid traces? And we validated that by basically looking at the delta prevalence, so the power of the slow waves in cortex at the opposite hemisphere, <clears throat> and we could have a low prevalence in awake mice, and then we could give them ketamine silencing anesthesia and increase it. Opposite Lulu could basically take an awake mouse and she could take her hand in under the curtain and twist its tail lightly and that would wake it up. So that was our two paradigm. But in all cases, we basically injected first. So this is the same field, but in this case we had used the green and the red uh, tracers for awake and sleep. So we injected a blue tracer into the vascular tool to have something to look at. You actually have a couple of penetrating arteries here. And the, this, these two movies are probably collected with at least an hour's difference. But the difference is that it's, this mouse is clearly awake here and it's clearly asleep here, the same field. And as you can see, there's a very dramatic difference in influx. In the sleep state, you see influx along the penetrating artery, you see here, primarily. And then, since we use the vasomotor tracer, you actually have Basically, equilibration of the tracer within just 10 minutes when we look 180 micrometer below the surface. So, very dramatic difference. You see a little bit of the green tracer had reached pier, but it doesn't really get inside. So, uh, that can be mapped in uh, three dimensions to really show the difference. And we have here a penetrating artery that is surrounded by the green dye in the sleep state, but uh, in the uh, awake state of this mouse, almost none of the red tracer that have the same molecular weight as a green tracer into the brain. Uh, and that can be mapped here where, so we quantified all of this set of data after 15 minutes. And if you quantify the data, either going from sleep to awake, or you go from awake to filaminsinosine anesthesia, it's almost like opening and closing a faucet. If you extend it to one or two hours, you would see, no, it's not an absolute uh, difference you actually see influx in the awake state uh, at, that, at that point. But it's still much slower. Basically, most of the CSF dye you inject in the awake state never reach brain. It's washed out along cranial nerve and the olfactory bone, and it will never enter brain. Um, so looking at that, you also start to ask, how does CSF really exit brain? And uh, uh, since we published our studies, there came uh, two studies out from two different groups, uh, one by uh, Kipnis um, in Virginia and one a Finnish group, a very, very good Finnish group. And what they basically showed was what was not really known before, more anecdotally, is that there are endure and meninges, which are mesodermally derived. You actually have lymphatic vessels. And uh, that fitted very well into our model because you basically, as we had before, they, they did the same studies we did. They injected cerebrospinal fluid tracers in cisterna magna and they saw influx into brain and similar to us, there is an influx that's paraarterial and an influx perivenous. The difference, eller, what they added to the literature is really to show that they are along the very large veins and around the sinuses, so the sagittal sinus, for example, up here, you actually have lymphatic capillaries. So in our efflux pathway, it's not just the pervin space, you actually have dedicated channel lymphatic vessel that can collect the excess fluid and transport it out. So this important, uh, that didn't really show either all whether it's important or not, but this very simple study that's come out, and this is a very low-key paper uh, you can find in the many other, where they simply looked at the concentration of a beta-40 and a beta-42, so amyloid. And what they did was they quantified the brain and they quantified the spleen, and I think I have here, uh, this is a heart and so on, and you see that you have 
much more in this uh, overproduce. This are mice that are overproducing amyloid. You have much more in the brain. But surprisingly enough, you have almost the same level in the lymph node at the neck and about the arm. I think that's absolutely amazing because that really suggests that you have a constant efflux that's so significant it actually reaches almost the same level as in brain itself. And that is by, by the lymphatic system that uh, is draining down here at the neck. I don't have a movie to show that, but I can I can show that at another point. You actually have tremendous efflux of cerebrospinal fluid traces down along here in, in, in animals. Um, so one thing that came out of that was we all know that uh, the lymphatic system is very dependent of the movement of limbs and uh, your body position. If you stand up all day, you have a tendency to accumulate more uh, protein because the lymph vessels are, are working against the gravity, transporting it back to the general circulation. And that came to the question where I worked with Helena Benjamista again to ask us the position of your head when you sleep does that influence how well you clear beta amyloid? It's a very like, simple question, and the reviewers, when they received the paper, basically said, this is a very unusual paper. Why would you even ask that question? <laughs> so that was funny, and it was really uh, inspired by that essentially all species, including human, uh, put their head down on the sleep, which should facilitate uh, the lymphatic system, because you have a higher, uh, what's called, uh, pressure when you of, of arterial blood reaching it, you should have a higher uh, pulse pressure. And there are very, very few animals in the animal kingdom that actually sleep with their head up. And you know, just from experience, trying to sleep in an airplane, if you're not flying business class, is actually really hard. You really have a tendency to you want to lay down. So we did a very simple experiment. We have, uh, had the mice in prone, lateral, and supine position. And these are the fluorescence experiment, but Helena Benveniste repeated this in rats, so it counts for rats too, and we saw that there's a very significant difference in influx of lymphatic traces in these different positions, and the prone position is the absolute worst. So you have much less influx of CSF in the prone position compared to both the lateral and the supine. And there's actually a beautiful literature that look at uh, what are the uh, preferential sleep position and actually more than 70% sleep in the latter right position. And the explanation from the cardiovascular field is you actually have uh, better cardiac output because you raise the heart a little. It's a little easier for the heart to pump out and also to retrieve the uh, return blood by the venous system in the lateral right position. That gives rise to a lower adrenergic tone in the entire body because there's less stress on, on the heart. Since we have, and I'm not showing that, we have actually shown that it's an adrenergic system that basically shut up the lymphatic system during wakefulness. We believe that these things are related. So, uh, after all of this and uh, these movies, you can ask why has this pathway not been described? Because it's not like any of what I showed here is uh, really innovative technique. All of this could have been done 50 years ago using uh, fixable traces and injecting cerebrospinal fluid uh, markers. You could fix and then look at histology. And the short of the long is it was actually described many years ago. There was a woman that was a young faculty member, and I think it's a really good story for young investigators. Her name was Patricia Grady. She, she basically did some tracing studies, and she noted by accident that if she hit it, uh, 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 spinal fluid and she missed by an injection. She put in either cats or dogs, so very big brains. If she fixed them just four minutes after she had injected horse fat peroxidase in this case here, four minutes after, in a huge brain, she actually saw the entire vascular system outlined by horse fat peroxidase. So she reported that in a couple of papers, and uh, the field were initially very excited about it. She didn't have proof for movement, but she had the proof that the horse rate peroxidase actually at CDDM and showed it's perivascular. What happened, 
what happened was that the big established group looking at the blood-brain barrier primarily or brain uh, diffusion and the diffusion of different tracers in brain, they repeated the, her experiment and they couldn't repeat them. They used smaller animals, mostly rats or rabbit, and they just did not see perivascular influx and they concluded if it exists, it's inconsistent and it's very minor. What those groups did that was so established, and this was Brown University, it was NYU, was they made a cranial window so they could visualize the movement of the traces. They used mostly fluorescent traces. And if you're making an opening in a pressure-driven system, you lose the pressure and you're eliminating what you want to study. The, out the outcome, no matter what was, that uh, Patricia Brady had to leave science. She was a young investigator. Her prime papers was not uh, was shown to be wrong, and she went into NIH as a study section officer. And it's actually a success story because she forgot all about that. What does she just describe? But she buys the rank, and she's right now she is the uh, uh, chair of Institute of Nursing that have done tremendous work good in pain research, like how to handle a patient with chronic pain, especially in the hospital setting. So she has done really, really well for, for, for health in the US especially. But it's, it's kind of a story. If you have something you believe in, you should really go ahead and try to prove it, although it, people might, might question it. Then you can ask, is there evidence that this exists in human brain? Yes, there's actually a couple of evidence that this, this uh, phenomenon occurred. That was published uh, from a group, um, also an uh, independent group, I don't know the investigators. They uh, had a patient here, so this is kind of a case report, a patient with a CSF leak, and they were allowed to inject, uh, I think it's so it's Gattacrest here in this case here, and they basically just image the patient using MRI at one hour and at uh, four hours after they injected the uh, contrast agent, and they saw there was a continuous increase in contrast entering the brain parenchyma. You see here it's about the brain, but you actually have, if you compare here to here, you have an increase in contrast. So that's just the case report, but I've also worked with a Finnish group uh, in Ulu, all the way up near here at the North Pole, that does super fast imaging. And basically what they do is they do this 10 hertz MRAC imaging, incredibly fast, they're undersampling tremendously. But then they're, they're at the same time, they capture the cardiac cycle and respiration. And then after the fact, after they've collected all these images, they sort them after, so they're basically uh, plotted as a function of when you had a heartbeat or when you have a respiration. And when they do that, they see this tremendous movement of fluid in the brain, here by the cardiac cycle triggered. I don't quite know what they mean, but uh, it suggests that there's very major movement of fluid within the brain. Opposite, you get totally opposite uh, data if you look at the uh, one that is organized according to respiration is basically the opposite direction you see this fluid movement. I think a lot more studies are needed like that because what we really need is a non-invasive way of looking at the lymphatic system. Uh, let's see here what I can get. Then I just uh, gave a pep talk for basically companies in Denmark, and I thought I would expose you to just a few slices. And that is the advantages of maybe targeting the glymphatic uh, system in neurodegenerative diseases. Uh, so I was reviewing the field a little bit as I did that, and one thing I can say is that it appears from our studies that the glymphatic system turn on during sleep is such a robust phenomenon, it has to be part of the normal sleep physiology. So targeting that, enhancing that during sleep, could probably be a very beneficial way of clearing proteins you want to clear. <clears throat> so just simply maybe sleeping longer, having a better quality of sleep, could, could be a, a, a part of really managing uh, or reducing how aggressive the neurodegenerative diseases affect the brain. And there's many clinical studies that suggest that, that sleep disturbances often precede the cognitive decline. So it's clearly an integral part of it. It's also something I really like about it, and that it's completely unspecific. 
So it's basically similar to home where you don't want to recycle anything, you want to dump it, you don't want to look at the waste. All the effort you put into shopping and what you bring to your home, you forget who you want to bring it out, you want to dump it. And similarly, if you look at the block brain barrier, there's hundreds of transporters for transport into the brain. There's no transporters for waste, which suggests that the brain thinks the same way as us. We don't want to spend energy sorting our waste, we just want to dump it. <clears throat> Why is that important? It's important because the first uh, clinical trial that's actually been happening, and this is commercial by Biogen, that uh, have invested billions of dollars or euro in developing an antibody strategy to treat uh, Alzheimer's disease. And basically what they do is uh, inject an uh, antibody, which I cannot pronounce, I don't know how they would ever get the patient that are beginning phases of Alzheimer's, early Alzheimer's, to basically pronounce this, but they've invested billions of dollars in developing this antibody that recognizes a specific epitope on beta amyloid in aggregates. So it's highly specific for when they're actually making, forming the, the amyloid plates. They inject that intravenously in patients at uh, very early stages at Alzheimer. Once a month, every injection costs thousands of dollars because these are monoclonal, highly purified uh, uh, antibodies that's allowed to inject into humans. And you have probably 0.3% of the antibody in the blood entering the brain. Nobody really knows how, but they somehow enter it. And you can actually, this, this this particular graph here was actually giving rise to a 7% increase in Biogen's uh, stock <coughs> the day it was released at an Alzheimer's meeting in Paris last year. Because what it shows is that you do uh, basically a uh, dementia scaling here. And what it shows is that the patient that received uh, this antibody, some of them, at least in the higher doses, suggested that they decline in cognitive function here of people who did not ever receive placebo was lesser in some of these. So it's estimated based on this, and investors are really flocking to invest in biogen right now, it's estimated that the trial uh, tree uh, that they're starting with now would cost 2.5 billion dollars. A huge amount. So I think therapy like this would probably not reach many people. It's going to be very, very expensive. You would not reach uh, underdeveloped countries, for example. Worse of that, since the start of this treatment here, it's actually been increasingly recognized. It's probably not amyloid, but it's tau that's causing the decline in cognitive function. And maybe the effect they're seeing here, which is very minor, maybe what they're seeing is less tau aggregation, less tauopathy. What, but they're behind because they started this project many, many years ago. So that means with specific targeting, you are also much more limited, I think. So I like the general targeting. And also, what I believe is to target the lymphatic system is that it's likely to work in uh, many types of neurodegenerative diseases because they're all characterized by protein waste accumulation. So finally, I want to thank you for listening. And I have mentioned the people who really spearheaded this work and especially Jeff Liff was a postdoc that worked in my lab, who's now independent investigator in Oregon. Thank you so much for listening.